Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. You do such nice ohms, you know, that uh, I'm a little reluctant to say it after you. <clears throat> but, you know, in India they start practically everything with an ohm. And then we come to this invocation of that is whole, this is whole. From wholeness emerges wholeness. Wholeness coming from wholeness, wholeness remains. <clears throat> All this is for the habitation by the Lord. By that renounced thou shouldst enjoy. Lust not after any man's possessions. Doing verily works in this world, one should wish to live a hundred years. Thus it is in thee, and not otherwise than this. Action cleaves not to a man. Sunless are those worlds, and enveloped in blind gloom, where to all they in their passing hence resort, who are slayers of their souls. One unmoving that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not, for it progresses ever in front. That standing passes beyond others as they run. In that, the master of life establishes the waters. That moves, and that moves not. That is far, and the same is near. That is within all this, and that also is outside all this. One second. The greatest of all the Upanishads is this Isha Upanishad. <clears throat> and now, uh, this that we sometimes call consciousness, uh, we have lots of names for it, but difficult to find with all its names. In India, they, and also in our Western world, we call it sometimes the indwelling spirit, the spirit that dwells within, the indwelling spirit. Uh, that which lives or gives life to the senses. That with which, by which, the eye perceives and by which the ears hear, and by which the fingers feel. That singleness which lives in the multiplicity and in this relativity that I call myself and the world the indwelling, hmm? lives in us. It lives in our ignorance of its oneness. And we look far and wide for it, don't we? Yeah. 
It dwells also in the consciousness of unity, not only in our ignorance, but in the unity. And in the unity, in this oneness, or in its simplicity, or its singleness, it is not bound by ignorance, or vidya, as their term is. Vidya is ignorance, the negation of knowing. Vidya is the knowing, or what we might call the noesis is knowing, and the, but that which you know by knowing the knowledge, you know, is the noetic, the noetic quality. So we have ignorance and knowing. Now, this life in us, this indwelling spirit, allows us to identify with an object. Now, object. First object we know anything about is me. And this remains with us <coughs> throughout our most of our lives, this object me, this relative me, relative to mm -hmm and feelings relative me, ego me, avidya me, ignorant me. Hmm? Yeah. And uh, this one is seemingly absorbed. into this avidya to the apparent exclusion of avidya, this, the, this knowing or this knowledge. So that this noetic quality <clears throat> in us remains veiled, hidden in the mind, as it were. Now, in our ignorance of unity, we perceive an object. That is, we say, we see a thing. We see things all day long. We perceive, and out of this perception, we conceive. That is, we come up with ideas. Hmm? We come up with the idea that what we have perceived is reality, that the thing is reality. We also think, well, let's take object, thing, I'm a thing. I'm a thing to myself. We're things, and we're objects, object me. <clears throat> so this is real. I mean, now what else have I got? You know, this is how we start out. It's what we become aware of, first of all, is this body. Me. Not for a long time, me. That's a thing. A thing. We also think that this life that is inherent in this object, me, is limited and is determined by this appearance. Hmm? By the appearance of the object, that the life is limited to it. Take a dog or a cat. We think the life of the dog or the cat is limited to that dog or a cat. Hmm? to that object. Yeah. And we sometimes turn this a little bit further and we say that the object, now this time object I, governs this inherent life. Huh? Yeah, you're the boss. Yeah. 
So, how do you think about an object? How do you think about an object? Uh, I think we should begin to look because we think all kinds of things about an object, all be unbeknownst to ourselves. Uh, do you think of an object as one of the appearances of this indwelling spirit? You walk outside there and you see those three dogs. Are those appearances of this unity, of this oneness? Is this what you think? You should. We think of each of these objects, of these things, as an existence separate unto itself and governing itself. You know, like it's standing out, which is what existence means. To exist means to stand out from. So it, the thing stands out. It exists, stands out from the universe and differs from all else. We say this all the time. We are very unique. Hmm. This is what we have been fed. This kind of thinking is an illusion, is illusory. Hmm? It is being identified with ignorance, and it makes a falsity out of reality. So that we're fighting all the time of what we think of as reality and what really is reality. Hmm? And this illusion in uh, the Sanskrit is called ahamkara. Ahamkara. And translated, this ahamkara simply means ego. Ego sense, ego function. And it is this ego which leads us to view ourselves as independent personalities. Unique and standing out from the universe. Never mind all the pumpkins hmm, behind the temple. Because we are so involved with this illusory state, we feel as if we are separated from the whole. You know, we feel we are leading an independent, separate existence. We're separated from the whole. And because we have this feeling of separateness, we do not have the ability to enter into the harmony of the universe. We are not able to enjoy the harmony of this universe. The self, or the true self, or Buddha's, no self, that state of consciousness or that state of subjectivity. And self is a term used in the Upanishads, so we use it quite a bit doing this thing, which makes an object for us because of the language, a self, because we think of ourselves as a self. It is a thing. And Buddha came along and said, it is a no-self. It is not a thing. But because of our inability to step aside from this illusory state, this indwelling spirit is not able to realize its true existence. It's true life, hmm? or it's true identity. It doesn't realize 
itself because of the limitations that I as ego have placed upon it. This that we call ego, you know, it, it, uh, it seemingly, it just turns its back on this indwelling spirit, as it were, and very busily identifies itself in this relative world and puts itself on this teeter-totter. I'm liked, I'm not liked, I want that, I don't want that. You know, this, it very busily identifies itself. You know, it's almost <laughs> as if we were dealing cards in a gambling game. Hmm? That's what the ego does. Deals you cards by which you think you have to play. All of them are limiting. Hmm? So naturally, what comes out of it is a discord with oneself. No harmony. Discord, not only with oneself, but with others. Uh, There is a a sense of not being able to do, an inability to do. Hmm? And there also is a kind of a weakness, we think. And there is this sense of obscuration. And there is this straining of the energy you know, in a desire towards some kind of self-fulfillment. And then, of course, there is this recoil, the springing back of this energy, the, or this, in this case, this falling back of an exhausted energy being pushed out there to look for its fulfillment. And it falls back, and disappointment begins to move into a disintegration, the kind of an entropy, hmm? Entropy. Um, you, th- you throw a ball, and the momentum carries it so far, that is the energy carries it so far. And then all of a sudden it begins to go down. It's lost its momentum. That's a kind of an entropy. Uh, the leaves coming out in the springtime And, you know, they bud, and then they blossom, and they're nice and green. And uh, then in the fall, they begin to disintegrate. They turn brown, and they get dry. It's a throwing out of the energy, in a way. It's an entropy. Hmm? We use it all the time, this entropy. Yeah. Anyway, in this card game, you know, we get these cards, and this is this desire, and this is this desire, and this is this desire, and this one is not fulfilled, and that one is not fulfilled, and that desire isn't fulfilled, and this desire isn't fulfilled, and this then obscures something, and I'm straining to have this and that and the other, and all these disappointments. In this manner, when you look at it in this sense, desire has been called the badge of slavery. You know, Jack used to say people, he'd say somebody, they wear their stupidity like a badge of honor. This is what we do with slavery. Yeah. And we, you know, beaten like a dog, we are all worn out, disappointed. It's what our own desires do to us. And of course we have with it all the attending discord and suffering. That That which is free does not desire. That which is limited desires. Hmm? 
that which is free does not desire. And we come in this thing to this renouncing all this, you know, one should enjoy. The desires, the cards that you deal yourself, you know, leave them on the table. You don't even have to turn them over. This kind of a renunciation is not a moral constraint, nor is it a self-denial, nor is it a physical rejection. It is an abandoning of what we don't need for the liberation of this indwelling spirit from our cravings. Liberation, you know, this freedom from egoism, freedom from personal desire, and this freedom enjoys this universe. Either aspect. When we drop this notion, and we hold this very closely, we drop this notion that most of the things that we see are necessary objects of possession. Or, woe is me, huh? Somebody has something that I don't have. The object then represents greed. Now, all individuals, so we could say all sentient beings, huh? all are of oneself, the Lord. We all are. We all are this indwelling spirit. We may appear seemingly separate, but all that exists exists in that and not outside. The idea of enjoying this universe all the motions in it hmm, are based on a perception in these Upanishads, based on a perception of this indwelling spirit. By transcending our ego desires, hmm, we realize, that is, we make actual this true oneness and find because of this realization we have had of it that has now changed us considerably, we have no need to possess. We can borrow when we need, but we do not possess. Having this oneness, we have this free delight in all things, and so we do not desire any of them. When we are one, we participate in the enjoyment of all things, which we realize are not things. We delight in a universal expression, which we ordinarily call things. In this oneness, in that, all this, is Ananda, the bliss. All this is the bliss. Desire. He woke up. Everybody turn and look once. (laughs) 
quick, he woke up. <laughs> Cute, huh? A nice looking child. Now, desire. He's got a raincoat on. Oh, it's a sweatshirt. I thought maybe it looks like a raincoat from here. Nice yellow raincoat. Desire. Uh, is a mode. The emotional mind, we can say, in its ignorance, looks for its delight, its enjoyment, in an object of desire, which when one is free, uh, one just, all this is for enjoyment. Huh? But we look, we want this bliss, this ananda, in the various objects, things that we want. And in these things that we want, we don't bother one little whit about this, that, Brahman, or God who is expressed in, and that repre this represents th that in this object. Hmm? The Brahman who is expressed and is represented by an object. Do you ever look at yourself in that manner? You represent something other than this ego. In, in, in the Upanishads, this idea that we have of dividing ourselves, and we're pro and con, we're for this and we're against that, and so on and so on, they say is like slaying a part of yourself this division. So they say, don't be one-sided. Don't cripple yourself. Don't paralyze yourself. Accept a totality. Accept a totality. <clears throat> so they say, worlds there are without suns, covered with darkness, to these, after death, go the ignorant slayers of the self. Living in this avidya, the ignorance of oneness, and this, the knot that holds this ignorance in place for us, is egoism. Mentally, at least, at least mentally, we could begin to view this universe as a huge motion. Universal motion, emotion, hmm? within which are many, 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 many individual movements. Hmm? Without looking at it uh, as uh, a big bubble or balloon with a lot of little people running around in it. So this is what you might do with such a thing of being in it and one motion with individual movements within it. Think of the movements within this universal motion as vortices of energy. There's not any cells there, huh? No things, no objects. These are energy vortices. Energy crests and then it ebbs, and then it crests, and then it ebbs. These are the patterns that we go by, that we live by, the patterns. Vortices of energy created by an overall energy, cresting and ebbing. Always within this overall energy, and when a given one departs from this, what we call physical life, 
One does not disappear out of this universal motion. No. The consciousness, having lost its body, but still garbed in its conditioning, hmm, moves into some other part of this universal motion. And these states into which we move can be either very obscure, they can be illuminated, and some, of course, are dark. And they are called sunless. Sunless are these worlds, and enveloped in blind gloom. Now, the Upanishads place a great deal of emphasis, significance on the sun, and we'll see that later on toward the end of the thing. So early on, paying attention to this sunless, we could here in the Western world, and I think many people do, relate it to some kind of a purgatory. Some people, and you would be surprised how many, some people almost demand that they be allowed to live a life of ignorance. Hmm? You never do that, do you? They think they're having fun that this is the natural pursuit of life. Huh? And you know, uh, in thinking along this line, I wonder about the youngsters. You know, they had it on TV here a week or so ago about the gangs and how they have spread out now from Los Angeles because the prices of the dope are too cheap. So they're spreading out across the country these gay street gangs. And because they can only make around $2,000 a day in Los Angeles, and someplace else they can make as much as $30,000 a day. Yeah. Anyway, these youngsters that are coming up in the new street gangs and in these older street gangs, what kind of a life do they have? What kind of a life will they have? To me, and I qualify that because it's to me, these lives are sunless and enveloped in blind gloom. And so strong in us, this instinct, you know, the herd instinct, pure relationship, it's a herd instinct, it can, you know, it's, it's an animal instinct. And in these young teenagers, you know, so pronounced is this that, let us say, a ray of light did penetrate into the consciousness. This slight rippling of consciousness came about in one of their members. Would he dare to pay attention to it? Or would he shove it aside for fear of reprisal from the other gang members because he wasn't hewing to their point of view? And, uh, you know... Are we having fun yet? <laughs> it's pitiful, isn't it? That we are so little educated. Indulging in desire. Indulging in desire is ignoring the soul. There is a difference between desiring and experiencing. And the difference is awareness. To experience, and to simply eat food, to listen to music, you know, to enjoy a night sky that's dark and has a few clouds, stars in it and a few clouds, and then the moon comes out from behind the clouds, you know. To enjoy the rain, and the dogs out there, to look at a flower, to look at a tree, whatever, whatever you look at. If you are not doing this in awareness, 
then uh, you are doing what Gurdjieff said. It's a very mechanical thing. If you are aware, say, of the night sky and the stars and the moon, it's called experiencing. There's a difference. The Buddha eating his food and you and me eating our food, outwardly we're doing the same thing. But me eating and the Buddha eating, you eating and the Buddha eating, the Buddha is experiencing and we are indulging. Hmm? It is not the act. It is the awareness within the act. A Buddha is just present while eating. And we're busy doing all sorts of things. Somebody said so-and-so. I wonder if that's true. You know, all kinds of things. So again, we come to this little story about the Zen master being asked, what are your spiritual practices? Hmm? What are your spiritual practices? What would you answer? This little one simply said, nothing much. Nothing to brag about. Very simple. When I feel hungry, I eat. And when I feel tired, I sleep. Spiritual practices, hmm? But that is what we all do, said the questioner. Ha-ha, but there you are not correct. Huh? Understand this, he goes on to say. I have lived mechanically and I have had experience. So I know the difference. You eat because it's time to eat. You eat because you are invited to eat. How often do you look at the need? It simply comes down to a question of awareness. Now this, you can see, that is not seen with the physical eye. And that's how we're interpreting it this morning, huh? As we have done all the way along in this Upanishad. Now, in that connotation, in that picture, this in the East is considered a wheel. And that is the hub or the nave. See? And we are reminded here, of course, of Lao Tzu, who expressed it so precisely by saying, 30 spokes unite in one nave, and on that which is a non-existence, on the whole in the nave, depends the wheel's utility. The wheel moves around and around, the nave moves not. All movement depends on something unmoving. All change depends upon something unchanging. Time depends on timelessness, and space depends on fullness. Hmm? You go to the ocean and you look at it, and you see this surface turmoil. You can't see into the depths. In order to see something that's going on in the depth, you have to dive in. Yeah. Now, you do the same with yourself. You see all this surface turmoil. But only when you go into the depths of yourself is this self realized. That is, it is made actual. This Brahman, this God, this self-realization, you make it actual. Yeah. Many, many people have argued about uh, the existence of God. Hmm? Where is he? 
What does he look like? How does he act? How did he beget his only son? The existence of God. See, thinking this way, we have not moved one iota from the world of things and objects, and we have thusly made of them God, Krishna, Buddha, a thing, an object. God has become an object because of the way we think. And now, we can understand that a brick wall is pretty object. It objects to our doing certain things. Uh, yeah, that is, we can jump over it or we can go around it, but we can't go through it. Now, yeah. ordinarily. <laughs> huh? Ordinarily, you can't pass through a brick wall. Yeah. You think you can? Try it. <laughs> but God now is not an object so you can pass through in fact you pass through God every moment incredible huh you're looking for him all over the place you're living in him you're breathing God every moment your very heartbeat is God's heartbeat you know as, as he said closer than hands and feet you know, my hand, you know, I look at it, and it's close. It's very close. But my very looking at it makes it separate. Hmm? I can hold this rock very close. Mm -hmm. But it's separate. Huh. It's close. Now, God is not close. God is inseparable. Without it, you wouldn't be. Without it, there would be no space in this building. And if there were no space in this building, you couldn't get in. The building would collapse because the fullness would be gone. God is your very subjectivity, not an object. It is your very innermost spark. And it will remain hidden until you make that 180 degree turn, until you turn around to yourself. Now, most of you, I'm sure, have seen this old symbol of the uh, snake biting its own tail. Symbol, it's very old, very significant. You know, most of the old mystery schools have used it. The 180-degree turn upon itself. And this, they say this is mind entering mind. Yeah. And Jesus said, be ye wise as serpents. You know, the puppy dog sees its tail and chases it and chases it and chases it and chases it, never catches it. But somehow a snake can. It is a wiser. In the East, what they call the Kundalini, you know, is the serpent power. It's this energy. And uh, it moves upon itself. Now, in any of these, what we usually call experiencing, we've stopped indulging. Now, we're going to experience and experiencing, see. Uh, and say you stumble upon what you call God. This now, to somebody in the street, is an unapprovable experience. In the very sense that you cannot drag the experience out of yourself and say, well, now, this is the Atman. And the Atman is Brahman, so here is God. Hmm. You can't do that. And to this Atman, this self, you know, 
It's not a thought. When you think it, you have made a, a kind of you've an object in the mind of it. We are so gifted, you know, that we don't need the thing in front of us in order to see it. We can look at it and go home and days later picture it, and it becomes still a thing to us. Hmm? Yeah. But your thoughts, as much as they seem things, are not things. And God thought of is a thought and not God. Now, our Western world has been very deeply involved in thinking, and thinking, and thinking, and thinking, and thinking. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But now we need to add a non-thinking state. Hmm? We study philosophy. We study Kant, and so we know something about the phenomenal and noumenal realities, and we study Hegel, and we study Bertrand Russell, and we study Wittgenstein, and I think he's very great. And we ponder over the thoughts that they had. And we ponder maybe deeply. We do well to study them. But at the same time, we must also allow a non-thinking. The Buddha's not. Nagarjuna's middle way. Hmm? His empty. The Upanishads written as they were, this divine language, the Sanskrit, huh? The Upanishads written by these seers, ancient, 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 hmm, who had experienced the unity, you know, of the ultimate, where one is no more a separate entity. And they following the old statement, like a dewdrop slips into a shiny sea. You drop within, and there is a shining sea. One unmoving that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not, for it progresses ever in front. That standing passes beyond others as they run. In that the master of life establishes the waters. That moves, and that moves not. That moves and that moves not. That is far and the same is near. That is within all this. And that also is outside all this. You know, <laughs> this little, that moves and this moves not. It's so beautifully expressed to me. You know, it's neat. You know. It is moving and unmoving, but never separate. The moving is not separate from the unmoving. We drag it out and say, well, the wheel, the moving wheel, and the hub, huh? And the hub doesn't move, but because of the unmoving hub, the wheel moves, and so they support each other. The world in the East is considered this wheel, and so the admonition is given, get off the wheel! Just get off the wheel. And they call it the wheel of samsara. When you are off the wheel, you step off the wheel, and you are in nirvana. You are blown out, which is what nirvana means. You're blown out. Hmm? We might say you have become unconditioned. You are no longer in a state of becoming. You have become what you are. What further is to become? Now is being. Yeah. This wheel and this hub 
are not enemies. They are bound together in a very deep friendship. This and that are bound together. You try to get away from one and you will get to be trying to get away from the other. <laughs> now, but this wheel on which we are bound, on which we go through all these various states, you know, they call them the six realms. There is the Deva world, where it is a kind of a world of self-complacency. Yeah. And next to that we find the Titan world, in which we have pictured this flaming sword, uh, which is supposed to bring about discriminating knowledge through our folly. Hmm? It is a realm of struggle. You know, in which we fight desire. And a sword seems necessary because in this realm we find this strife and this force. We're trying to force something with ourselves or with the world. And from this realm of power-driven titans, we move into a realm of fear. It's a world of animal instincts and subconscious drives, and because they are not pictures as objects to us, these instincts and subconscious drives, they just motivate us into moving, and we don't know anything about it until we've done it, and so we fear, because we don't know ourselves. <coughs> See? And then we have the realm of man, which is a purposeful, purposeful activity. We're full of purpose. Everything's got to have a purpose. Everything is a lesson to be learned. We're purposeful, and we have high aspirations. Oh, yes, indeed. Huh? So we could boom right back into the Titan world, couldn't we, from that? Because we jump around every five minutes of the day from one to the other. Huh? Yeah. We have in this realm of man, finally, an ability to make a decision, unless you're Pisces. <laughs> And then you wallow between. <laughs> yeah. And if and not being able to make a decision, we fail, you know, and so we fall into the Prada world, which is filled with unsatisfied passions, and uh, there is a kind of a peaceless existence filled with desire. That's how we run around. That's the wheel. And of course, around the hub of the wheel, there is this snake, and there is a rooster. And there is a pig. But we also have the world of hell, where the mirror of conscience, not consciousness, but conscience, superego type of thing, huh, is held up to us. And each of us, looking in this mirror, pronounces his own judgment. Not somebody else. You. Hmm? This is the wheel of samsara. The states, the realms into which we fall, day in and day out, day in and day out. This movement, this movement, they are individual movements in a universal motion. Get off that wheel. Hmm? Now, this world represents a cyclic movement of this true self or this no-self of Brahman, or we could say of divine consciousness. Yeah. It comes into its existence or its activity by its very movement. If this, this phenomenal world, a world of things and objects, if this no longer moved, it would cease to be. Existence, or we could say life, is this energy moving, 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 huh? The basis of energy moving is a very active consciousness, divine consciousness, which creates a polarity and therefore attention 
and it has these seeming oppositions in this multiplicity, divisions of time and space, and our relations, polarity between them. Now, everything that we see and hear and touch and so on and so on may seem real in the consciousness, but they are only symbols of the Brahman. They are symbols of states of the Brahman. We could say almost it's kind of like the imagination of a very creative mind. Somebody imagines all kinds of things. The imagings are representations. They are not real compared with the mind itself. It is a different kind of a reality. So we call it phenomenal reality and noumenal reality. I have a feeling that sometimes when I talk, it makes about as much sense to some people listening as a drunk at a circus watching a contortionist. Totally mystified, this little drunk, and totally absorbed as this performer goes all through his act until finally he reaches a place where he can't contain himself any longer, and he cries out, What's the matter? You look like I'm drunk. (laughs) I sometimes feel like that. Sometimes I hope I get through now and then with a little bit. Mental consciousness, that's thinking, huh? Thinking is not the power that creates the universe. We're arguing with Plato, aren't we? Such gall. Ideas are not the power. You know, he was very strong on his ideational world. That power is swifter, infinitely, and totally unfettered by the mind, that power. That power is the pure, omnipotent, self-awareness of the Absolute. And it's free from any law of relativity. Although the laws of relativity stem from the Absolute. Hmm? The gods now, as they are called in India, Every force, every crest of energy is named. It's called a god, and so becomes an object also. Hmm? The gods are objects. These laws about motion and entropy and all that kind of stuff, you know, these laws stemming from the absolute, regulate motion and change. They are not laws that bind the absolute in any manner, shape, or form. He is the Lord of movement, but he doesn't move, and yet he does, but he doesn't. Hmm? So the gods being as they are, these laws, are described as continually running in their course while the Lord is free. 
change represents the constant shifting of relations. The polarity, the constant shifting of relations. And the laws or the motions in the world, in this totality, are always seeking stability and equilibrium. Brahman represents himself in this universe. The gods, the forces, the laws, represent or they express the Godhead. And they appear as the play of nature. The play of all becoming. Brahman representing himself in the consciousness of many. Everything in this nature, in this motion, seems to itself to be moving toward a goal outside itself or other than its immediate idea of itself. We could qualify it that way. And Brahman is the goal. It is the beginning and it is the end. It is the cause and the result of all movement. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.